Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and adult content that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On July 31, 1980, 29-year-old Paul Snyder parked his Mercedes on a quiet block in Bel Air, California. It was a hot, still night, and the smell of jasmine hung in the air. Lights glowed in the windows of the Spanish-style mansion set behind the hedges. Somewhere inside was his wife, Dorothy Stratton. She and her new boyfriend, Peter Bogdanovich, had just come back from making a movie together. He imagined her unpacking her bags, settling in, maybe even taking a shower. It made him ill. It made him feel pure rage. He popped open the glove box and took out the handgun that lay inside. He got out of the car and walked to the iron gates. In the moonless night, it was easy for him to hide. He crouched behind a jacaranda tree and took off the safety. If Dorothy or the famous director came through those gates, he was going to shoot to kill. He waited two hours. When nobody showed, he drove up to Mulholland Drive. At a lookout above the San Fernando Valley, he stepped out of the car and took a long look at the glittering lights below. It was time to end it all. He put the gun to his head and his finger on the trigger. But at the last minute, something stopped him. He pointed the gun at the sky and fired two shots. It was a middle finger raised to the world. Paul Snyder wasn't the type to go down without a fight. And he wasn't going to go down alone. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? 
If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we met 29-year-old Paul Snyder and his 20-year-old wife, Dorothy Stratton, 1980s Playboy Playmate of the Year. As Dorothy's fame grew, she began to resent Paul's controlling and abusive behavior. When she tried to leave him, it triggered one of the most notorious crimes in Hollywood history. This week, we'll look at the crime, its aftermath, and what really happened when Paul and Dorothy met for the last time on August 14, 1980. By June of 1980, 29-year-old Paul Snyder was becoming desperate. His marriage to Dorothy Stratton was coming to an end. She'd spent most of the spring in New York with another man, Peter Bogdanovich, filming his movie and avoiding Paul's constant phone calls. She wrote him a letter in May, telling him she wanted space. She'd also hired a money manager and created a business corporation to block Paul from her accounts. Paul knew that his days with her were numbered. At the end of June, his worst fears were confirmed. Another letter arrived, this one from a lawyer. Dorothy wanted a separation, physical and financial. Their marriage was over. Paul's first concern was money. The wet t-shirt and celebrity lookalike contest he promoted never brought in enough to satisfy his high-priced tastes. Dorothy was his meal ticket, and now he had to get as much as he could in the divorce. He called Dorothy's business manager. He told Paul that under California law, he was entitled to half of Dorothy's earnings to date. She would also give him a cash settlement, but Paul wanted more, alimony, and 50% of Dorothy's gross income for the next three years. He also wanted her to buy him a house. By mid-July, Paul had acquired both a divorce lawyer and a private investigator named Mark Goldstein. They started looking for proof of an affair. Paul handed over poems and love letters from Bogdanovich that he'd found in Dorothy's things and told Goldstein to have her followed. He also asked Goldstein to do an asset search on Dorothy. When Paul wasn't harassing Dorothy's money manager or speaking to his lawyer, he went about seducing other women mostly college students. He also started promoting Patty Lorman, a 17-year-old model he was trying to groom into the next Dorothy. Toward the end of July 1980, Paul became increasingly desperate. To his friends, he seemed to be falling apart. He frequently broke down in tears and asked them to call Dorothy on his behalf, or he rambled on about how she'd wronged him. His housemate, Stephen Kushner, came home one night to find Paul too upset to finish writing a letter to Dorothy. 
But even as he wallowed in self-pity, Paul never stopped feeling rage at being cut off. There had to be something he could do, some way he could fight back. Earlier in the summer, he'd asked his buddy Chip Clark to loan him his handgun. Paul claimed it was for protection in his crime-adjacent neighborhood. Now, if things got bad enough, if he got mad enough, the 38 caliber was a last resort. With a gun in hand, Paul couldn't be completely defeated. Before I continue with Paul's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Psychologist Bruno M. Cormier was one of the first people to study the dynamics within marriage that leads to homicide. In a 1962 study of men who kill their wives, Cormier found that the presence of unresolved dependency conflicts was a common thread. If the male partner was too dependent on his wife to end the relationship, but unable to continue in the relationship in its present form, then this was frequently a trigger for him to kill her. James David Hinton, the actor who'd befriended Dorothy on the set of Galaxina, later said about Paul, I felt that his identity was entwined with hers. I'm not sure he even loved her. He may have done, but mostly she was his identity and a strong one for a guy who was scrambling. Paul was too dependent on Dorothy psychologically and financially to walk away from the marriage, but the presence of a rival, Bogdanovich, made it impossible for him to stay. Unable to leave, unable to stay, Paul saw only one option. He expected Dorothy would return to Los Angeles before August 1st, 1980, the date of Hugh Hefner's Midsummer Night's Dream Party at the Playboy Mansion. On July 31st, his hunch was confirmed by a surprise phone call. It was the operator. Dorothy had been detained by immigration for an expired visa on her way back from Europe. She'd placed a call to Playboy in Los Angeles from the airport and charged it to Paul's number. Now, Paul knew that she was coming back in time for the party. Then Paul heard from Playboy. It was one of Hugh Hefner's secretaries, letting him know that he wasn't welcome at the party without Dorothy. Unbeknownst to Paul, Hugh Hefner had heard that Dorothy and Bogdanovich were now an item. He didn't want the two of them to run into Paul and cause a scene. But Paul was sure that Dorothy had given Hefner the order to keep him away. Paul hung up the phone in a rage. He grabbed the gun and got into his car. He raced to Bel Air, to the home of Dorothy's new boyfriend. Paul stood for two hours outside Bogdanovich's gates, the gun in his hand. The banishment from the mansion had finally put him over the edge. All this time, he'd comforted himself with the knowledge that at least he had his own relationship with Playboy, that they viewed him as a separate entity from his wife, that he could stand on his own two feet there. Now, he realized he'd been fooling himself. The thought made him shake with fury. He waited for two hours, but nobody came in or out of the gates. Paul got back in the car and headed to Mulholland Drive. With his plans for murder thwarted, he decided to kill himself. It would be the ultimate way to punish Dorothy, 
to punish all of them. But at the last moment, as he stood above the city, he fired the gun at the sky instead of at his own head. The gun kicked in his hand as he squeezed the trigger. The sound of gunshots was deafening, satisfying. As he got back in the car, he knew that this wouldn't be the end. He just needed to hold on a little bit longer. On Monday, August 4th, Paul got a phone call from Dorothy. She agreed to meet him that Friday, August 8th, for lunch. It was an unbelievable turn of events. Paul was over the moon. The night before their meeting, he went out for dinner with his friends and told them the queen was coming back. It would be a new start for their relationship. Dorothy would see that he had changed. On the day of their lunch date, Paul woke up nervous and excited. He had 17-year-old Patty clean the house and vacuum the rug while he changed into the suit he'd worn on their wedding day. He got a bouquet of red roses, wrote out a card, and chilled some champagne. It was the perfect romantic setting. Paul waited for her, fidgeting on the couch, barely able to contain his excitement. He knew she'd walk in wearing a pretty dress, with her hair and makeup done just right, eager to look her best for him. By the end of their lunch, they'd be back together. But then Dorothy walked in, wearing casual clothes. Paul was crushed. She barely touched the champagne and didn't bother to read the card he'd left next to the roses. Paul sat across from her, close enough to touch her, but Dorothy may as well have been a million miles away. It was the first time they'd seen each other in almost three months, but it felt like years had passed. She told him that the relationship was over. She wanted a separation. Finally, she admitted that she was in love with Bogdanovich. Paul pulled out every accusation he could think of. Bogdanovich was a scoundrel. He'd left his wife and children for another actress. He was going to use her up and discard her. It had no effect. Dorothy was undeterred. Paul tried to take her into his arms, but she wouldn't let him. It was clear the relationship was finished. That night, Chip Clark came by to collect his handgun. He was moving back to Florida the next day. Paul brought out the handgun. As he walked toward him, Paul once again aimed it at the sky and fired. Chip, unnerved, checked the cylinder. He saw that three shots had been fired. That's when Paul told him about the night he'd spent outside Peter's house. Chip drove away, relieved he would never have to see Paul again. The following day, Saturday, August 9th, Paul heard that he would no longer be allowed at the mansion at any time without Dorothy. Hefner had met with Bogdanovich and heard that he was deliriously in love with Dorothy. Banning Paul was the least he could do for his friend. Paul hung up the phone. It was hard not to think that Dorothy was somewhat involved. She'd only just met him the day before for their disastrous lunch. But instead of flying into a rage, Paul became strangely upbeat and social. The next day, Sunday, August 10th, 
he decided to host a barbecue. At the party, he sprinkled his conversation with references to guns. He even asked Mark Goldstein if he would buy him a machine gun. His friends noticed that Paul seemed to be in the best mood he'd been in all summer. But he also made comments about dead playmates or actresses who died before their movies came out. Yet his manner was so jovial, nobody thought much of it. But when Dorothy called Paul on Monday, August 10th, he was incensed. He screamed at her on the phone. Not only was she leaving him, but she'd poisoned the whole Playboy enterprise against him. She'd ruined his life. Dorothy, panicked and crying, agreed to see him one more time. She believed she owed him at least that much. That same day, Monday, August 11th, Paul found a gun. It was a 12-gauge Mossberg pump shotgun, the kind meant for long-range hunting targets. He arranged to meet the seller and learn how to shoot it in person. On Wednesday, August 13th, Paul met the seller and bought the gun for $125, $365 today. When Patty came home that night, she found Paul staring into space. For a moment, all of the bluster and braggadocio was over. It was the calm before the storm, except nobody recognized it. That night, Paul settled in with Patty and his new girlfriend, Lynn, to watch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, one of Dorothy's favorite movies. On the morning of Thursday, August 14, 1980, Paul wrote out a list of demands he wanted to raise with Dorothy when they met that day. Besides a cash settlement, he wanted an income. He would allow a legal separation, but not a divorce. It's unclear whether he ever made these demands to Dorothy in person, but he certainly was prepared to. Patty cleaned the house again. Then she went roller skating. Before she left him alone, Paul agreed to call her around 2 p.m. and meet her and Lynn at the rink. Private investigator Mark Goldstein, stationed in a nearby car, watched Dorothy park and walk into Paul's house around noon on the 14th. Then he drove home. He called Paul at 12.30. Speaking in code, Paul told him that everything was going well. Goldstein hung up, satisfied. Then he started calling again around 2.30 when he expected the meeting to be over. Nobody answered. Back in Bel Air, Dorothy's younger sister Louise, in from Vancouver, waited for her older sister's return. Dorothy had promised to be back by 2.30, but as the afternoon slipped into evening, Louise started to feel strange. She was the only one in the house who knew that Dorothy had gone again to see Paul. Peter Bogdanovich didn't know where Dorothy was either. All he knew was that she was supposed to see her business manager and then have a sitting for Playboy. When he heard from Louise that she'd gone to see Paul, he had a pit in his stomach. By 11 p.m., Patty Lorman and Stephen Kushner were upstairs watching TV. They heard Paul's phone ringing downstairs in his room. Nobody had answered it all day. His bedroom door was closed and had stayed closed all day. 
Dorothy had to be in the house because her car was parked out front and her purse was on the stairs, but neither of them had seen her. Finally, Goldstein called on the other line. He asked Patty to go check on Paul. He was worried. Too scared to go in the room herself, she asked Kushner to do it. As Kushner walked downstairs, he had a feeling of dread and it intensified with each step. Suddenly, he didn't want to see what was on the other side of this door. He knocked once, twice, then he turned the knob. What he saw inside would shock Hollywood for decades to come. When we return, the investigation into one of the most depraved crimes in Hollywood history. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now, back to the story. When Stephen Kushner opened Paul Snyder's bedroom door around 11 p.m. on the evening of August 14, 1980, he walked into a horrific sight. Dorothy Stratton was dead. She'd been shot in the face and lay half on the carpet, half over Paul's bed, her buttocks raised in the air. A bloody handprint was visible on her backside and left leg. The tip of her left index finger was also gone. A trail of ants marched from the wall to the pulp that had been her face. A few feet away from her lay Paul Snyder. He too had been shot in the face. In his right hand, he grasped tufts of blonde hair. Underneath him lay the Mossberg shotgun. Both of the bodies were nude. Private investigator Mark Goldstein arrived at the murder scene before the police. The first person he called, for unknown reasons, was Hugh Hefner. Hefner was in the game room at the Playboy Mansion playing pinball when the call came through. Hefner was stunned. He called Bogdanovich. When he told his friend that Dorothy was dead, Bogdanovich fell to the floor. He grew so hysterical that night, he needed to be sedated. 
The facts surrounding the investigation are murky to this day. The most definitive account we have says that police were on the scene by 12.20 a.m. Lieutenant Glenn Ackerman walked into Paul's bedroom and for obvious reasons, surmised that this was a murder-suicide. The tufts of hair in Paul's hands suggested a struggle, but Dorothy's positioning and bloody handprint on her buttocks indicated a more sinister interpretation, sexual assault. So did the fact that Paul seemed to have died at least an hour after Dorothy. Police put the time of Dorothy's death to be 1 p.m. and Paul's to be two o'clock. Two days later on August 17th, autopsy results confirmed that Dorothy and Paul had both died from Paul's shotgun. Assistant Coroner Dick Wilson deemed the deaths a simple murder-suicide, but to this day, it is unclear whether the police know without a doubt that Paul was the one to pull the gun's trigger. His hands were too coated with blood and tissue to be absolutely sure. Dorothy's funeral was held a week after her death, on Friday, August 22nd. Her body had been cremated, but Bogdanovich insisted on her ashes being buried. He'd arranged for a plot at Westwood Memorial Cemetery. A caravan of black limos drove slowly through the cemetery up to the gravesite. Dorothy's mother, Nellie, came with her younger children, 19-year-old John, 12-year-old Louise, and her new husband, Burl Eldridge. All were flown down from Vancouver by Playboy. Dorothy's estranged father, Simon, even made an appearance. Hugh Hefner attended with Marilyn Grabowski, Playboy's photo editor, and Mario Casilli, Dorothy's favorite photographer. It was a grim scene. Hefner and Bogdanovich watched as Dorothy's coffin was lowered into the ground. Each man threw a single rose onto the coffin before it was covered with dirt. It was the last time the two men ever spoke. Everyone who knew Dorothy was shaken to the core. After the funeral, people tried to move on, but the grisly murder-suicide and the lack of explanation by the LAPD triggered rumors and gossip. Had Dorothy been sexually assaulted? Had it happened before or after her death, or both? With so little actually known about what happened in Paul's bedroom and with no actual witnesses, the rumor mill went into overdrive. Newspapers across the country and even in Europe were quick to report on the beautiful playmate gunned down by her jealous husband. Her story became a Hollywood cautionary tale. Playmate slash bad girl has a tragic end. But there were other reasons for its appeal in the press. A rumor lingered, helped along by Mark Goldstein, that it wasn't a murder-suicide, but actually a double homicide. Dorothy and Paul were both victims. The possible culprits ran the gamut from drug dealers to gang members he'd grown up with in Vancouver. There was also the more lurid rumor that Paul had sexually violated Dorothy's corpse. The LAPD unwittingly made the story stick by never addressing the question of sexual assault in the press. Eventually, news coverage of the murder died down, but on November 5th, 1980, an article appeared that started a deeper conversation about the tragedy of Dorothy Stratton. 
In her piece for The Village Voice, reporter Teresa Carpenter pinned blame on Paul, but also on Playboy. If it hadn't been for the gauzy pictures printed of Dorothy nude, helpless and posed as a sexual object, Paul wouldn't have seen her as an object to be possessed. He wouldn't have destroyed her. The piece got loads of attention. It went on to win Carpenter and The Village Voice the Pulitzer Prize for reporting in 1981. It served as the basis for a film about Dorothy and Paul called Star 80. But it also began a troubling pattern. From here on in, stories about Dorothy's murder would be less about her than the complicated egos of the men she left behind. Journalists, producers, writers, even Bogdanovich and Hefner all found ways to use her murder to advance their reputation or damage someone else's. Even in death, Dorothy, it seemed, could not keep herself from being used. After the Village Voice article, Hugh Hefner felt battered. He needed to repair his image after the hatchet job Carpenter had done on him and on Playboy. In May of 1981, he published his own profile of Dorothy. The piece was part tribute, part publicity tactic. In Playboy's interpretation, Hefner came off as a benevolent force in Dorothy's life, a father figure whose only intentions toward her were honorable ones. But the article was notable for another reason. It was the basis for one of the first lawsuits to arise from the murders. Paul's PI, Mark Goldstein, sued Hugh Hefner and Playboy for $40 million claiming defamation. The article accused Goldstein of ransacking Paul's bedroom after the murder and stealing Dorothy's personal items. Goldstein took umbrage at the portrayal. It wasn't the last libel suit he would bring in connection with the murders. The other man in Dorothy's triangle, Bogdanovich, was struggling. By all accounts, he went crazy with grief. He spent weeks locked in an editing suite, working on a cut of the film he'd shot with Dorothy in New York. Staring at Dorothy's face day after day as he cut the picture was heartbreaking. His friends feared that he was headed for a breakdown. According to the Australian Psychological Society, sudden death of a loved one without any explanation can make us feel especially vulnerable. Sue Morris, director of bereavement services at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, explained that the concept of control plays a central role in the cognitive interpretation of grief. When somebody dies, the bereaved have little or no control over the circumstances surrounding the death. They can feel overwhelmed by their grief and unsure about what to do to help themselves at a time when they feel especially vulnerable and alone. But the movie gave Bogdanovich a sense of purpose. He decided he had to complete it as a testament to Dorothy and her talent. By the fall of 1980, Bogdanovich was making regular visits up to Vancouver to provide emotional support to Dorothy's mother, Nellie, and sister, Louise. He was getting tired of seeing Dorothy completely defined by her association with Playboy in the press. He wanted the world to know that she was a gifted actress and would have undoubtedly been a star, and later, his wife. 
He also wanted to address the rumors that Dorothy and Paul had been killed by a third party, rumors he wanted to put to rest. He decided to write a book about Dorothy. It had a therapeutic effect on him. Screenwriter David Scott Milton said, he became obsessed and possessed by it, but at least it gave him something to hang on to, a sense of purpose. But as he started to research her life, he became fixated. No trail was too obscure, no source too far flung. His production company even sought out people who had inside knowledge and paid them money for the exclusive rights to their story. Then, Bogdanovich began to test They All Laughed, the movie he'd shot with Dorothy. Audiences weren't engaged. Adding to its tricky, uneven tone was a horrible reminder of tragedy whenever Dorothy came on screen. Two crucial test screenings in the Midwest fared badly, and 20th Century Fox declined to release it in New York and Los Angeles. Bogdanovich couldn't accept the fact that nobody would see Dorothy's biggest screen effort. He decided to buy back the rights to the film and release it himself. In the spring of 1982, Bogdanovich contacted one of Dorothy's friends and a Playboy Mansion regular named Patrick Curtis. Dorothy had trusted Curtis and considered him one of her few true friends. Bogdanovich wanted to know more about the atmosphere Dorothy had encountered at the mansion and figured Curtis would be an excellent source. But Bogdanovich got more than he bargained for. Curtis claimed that on her first night at the mansion, Dorothy was sexually assaulted in the jacuzzi and her assailant was none other than Hugh Hefner. When we return, we look at the feud that developed between two powerful men and what is truth and reality as far as the Dorothy story is concerned. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. When Peter Bogdanovich heard about Dorothy Stratton's 1978 assault at the hands of Hugh Hefner, he was enraged. He'd been struggling for four years to find someone to blame for Dorothy's murder. Now, he had someone. It would be the prevailing argument of his book, a 2005 study that appeared in the American Journal of Preventative Medicine pointed out that friends and family of homicide victims are afflicted by a number of mental health issues. One is a preoccupation with revenge, coupled with tremendous anger. As Bogdanovich took in the shocking revelation from Patrick Curtis, his book became something more than a simple eulogy. It became an accusation. In 
mid-1984, Hefner was curious to see galleys of the book in advance of its publication date. He and Bogdanovich were no longer speaking, and Hefner was still feeling raw from his treatment in the Village Voice article four years earlier. He was curious and likely nervous about what his old friend would write about his relationship to Dorothy. What Hefner read shocked him. He thought Bogdanovich had lost his mind. Then he got angry. Bogdanovich had never even interviewed him for the book. He'd been given no chance to defend himself and now he was being accused of rape? His lawyer sent the publisher, William Morrow, a 42-page list of objections. William Morrow agreed to take out the word rape, but not the story of assault. Hefner thought about suing, but decided against it. The Killing of the Unicorn was published on August 14, 1984, on the four-year anniversary of Dorothy's death. It was almost universally panned, the New York Times called it part tribute, part self-justification, and part accusation. The Chicago Tribune called it an embarrassment to the author. Mark Goldstein promptly sued Bogdanovich for $10 million, claiming libel. The book also did everything possible to keep the rumor alive that Dorothy had been tortured, raped, and sodomized by Paul Snyder before and after death. Newswires picked up the more disgusting details and wove them into reports of their own. But it turns out that Bogdanovich had no evidence to support this. The 1980 report from Chief Medical Examiner Thomas Noguchi and his assistant coroner Michael Shepard still stands. The report states, no laboratory findings of sexual abuse, only possible sexual activity. Semen was found only in Dorothy's vagina, not her mouth or rectum. The autopsy report states that there was no tissue damage consistent with sexual assault. But Hefner only cared about the assault on his character. He should have felt vindicated by the poor reception to the book. Instead, he became obsessed. He made sure to tell everyone within earshot that he was an innocent man, He'd been nothing more than a father figure to Dorothy, someone she'd gone to for advice about getting married, someone she looked up to. Hefner felt betrayed by Bogdanovich, who'd been a frequent guest at the mansion, and someone who'd pushed his fair share of Hefner's beauties, even though those days were long over. Hefner seethed. He even had Bogdanovich psychoanalyzed from a distance. In late 1984, Hefner hired a Chicago psychiatrist to read The Killing of the Unicorn and write up a psychological portrait of the author. The verdict? Bogdanovich's personality had completely collapsed and he'd chosen to project his rage onto Hefner. Hefner was an Oedipal figure who Bogdanovich wanted to metaphorically kill in order to possess Dorothy who belonged to him. His prescribed medication was antidepressants and electroshock therapy. Dorothy's memory was fast receding into the background. She'd simply become a device for revenge. Bogdanovich was now almost broke. Self-distributing Dorothy's movie had used up all his savings. All he seemed to have left were Nellie and Louise. He leaned on the family, 
traveled up to Vancouver when he could and treated them like the in-laws he didn't have. Hefner too started to experience a downward slide. The onset of AIDS in particular had quickly changed America's attitude towards casual sex. Now the Playmate and Bunny Act was starting to look tired. By 1985, Hefner faced a dwindling circulation and a crumbling empire. But the book and its accusation of rape remained his primary focus. He couldn't get past it. Executives in his company noticed that he spoke about it almost every day. One of them said he seemed overwhelmed by it. Then, in the spring of 1985, things only got worse. Hefner suffered a stroke. In Hefner's mind, his stroke was caused by stress brought on by the allegations. It was time, he realized, to fight back in public. Most people say that the point of revenge is catharsis, but a study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 2008 reported the opposite. If people don't revenge a hurt, they can later tell themselves that it didn't warrant retaliation. Eventually, they'll forget about it. But if they do revenge a hurt, then it doesn't go away. It can bloom into obsession. A month after his stroke, on April Fool's Day, 1985, Hefner called a press conference. The ostensible point of it was to show an hour-long documentary Playboy had put together about Dorothy for the Playboy channel. But Hefner wanted to set their record straight, and then some. After screening the documentary for a group of reporters, Hefner took the podium. The film had been carefully edited to show Dorothy all smiles and laughter at her photo shoots, albeit completely naked. It was evidence of Hefner's typical line that the years Dorothy spent posing for Playboy were the happiest of her life. Then Hefner looked out at the assembled crowd and read a prepared statement. He had never assaulted Dorothy Stratton, he said. Peter Bogdanovich's claims were groundless. The press appeared to be stunned. It seemed that nobody could believe that Hefner had created a video tribute to Dorothy only to clear his own name. To drive the point home, Hefner said that Peter Bogdanovich was keeping a secret of his own. Hefner told the crowd that the 45-year-old director was now having an affair with Dorothy's sister, 16-year-old Louise. To prove his point, he brought out Louise's ex-stepfather, Burl Eldridge. He claimed that Bogdanovich frequently took Louise to hotels for the weekend and that he'd seen evidence of the director sharing a bed with Louise. He added that the affair may have started when Louise was as young as 13 and went so far as to claim that Bogdanovich had paid for Louise to have jaw surgery to look more like Dorothy. The story hit newswires that same day. Bogdanovich somehow had a statement already prepared that also made the papers. He claimed that Hefner sold sexual lies every day. This one is just his latest. But Hefner felt vindicated. He later said, that day was the greatest cathartic experience of my life. But the catharsis didn't last long. Two days later, on April 3rd, 1985, 
Louise and her mother filed a $5 million slander suit against Hefner and Burl Eldridge. Hefner couldn't believe it. He thought he'd stood up for the Hoogstrattens and exposed their friendly caretaker as a perverted sociopath. Instead, he came off like a bully going after a teenage girl. He knew that he couldn't countersue in this case. Louise and Nellie rushed to Bogdanovich's defense. Hefner's lawyers began taking depositions. It turned out that the LAPD Juvenile Division had opened an inquiry into Bogdanovich and Louise Stratton in 1981, after a part-time security guard claimed to see him and 13-year-old Louise sharing a bedroom while on a trip to Europe. The LAPD had reopened the investigation in 1984, but were unable to find any clear-cut evidence to support the claims. Once depositions began in Louise's slander case, the spotlight was once again thrown on her unusual relationship with Bogdanovich. By August of 1985, she and her mother had dropped the suit. Hefner, Bogdanovich, and the Hoogstrattens signed releases, relinquishing their rights to bring further suits on the matter, and the two men formally ended their feud. Hefner, for his part, continued to deny the rape charge for the rest of his life. He admitted to Rolling Stone in 1986 that he'd been naked in the jacuzzi with Dorothy, but that the incident was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing memorable, and that it had taken place two weeks after she arrived at the mansion. Nothing happened between them, he said. But even if it had, he maintained to a reporter, what's wrong with that? Why is sleeping with me so traumatizing, while sleeping with Bogdanovich brings you three steps nearer to heaven? Playboy never regained its 70 success. It gradually tumbled in circulation. Hugh Hefner died in 2017 at the age of 91. To this day, Peter Bogdanovich maintains that Hefner assaulted Dorothy Stratton in the Playboy jacuzzi. But it turns out that his source, Patrick Curtis, had an ax to grind with Hefner. What Bogdanovich didn't know in 1982 was that Hefner had politely banned Curtis from the mansion. When Hefner confronted Curtis about the jacuzzi story, Curtis claimed that he'd been quoted out of context. Eventually, Hefner had Curtis sign an affidavit that the entire story was a lie, but Bogdanovich didn't care. He never stopped mourning Dorothy, and he stayed close with Louise Hoogstraten. In 1988, they married. She was 20 years old, and he was 49. The marriage made headlines all over the country and raised more than a few eyebrows. While there was no evidence of statutory rape, it seems that Hefner's accusations weren't completely groundless. Peter and Louise divorced 13 years later, but as of October 2019, the two still lived together, along with Nellie Hoogstraten. The three of them, are bound together by tragedy. Dorothy's death remains a subject of fascination to this day. Specials and documentaries continue to be made about her life and death. It has all of the elements of a fairy tale and a modern day horror story. A beautiful girl, an unworthy suitor, a master puppeteer manipulating the lives of so many young women 
and a would-be prince in shining armor who missed a hundred red flags. Her death created shockwaves that reverberated for years. For a girl who grew up never expecting to be much more than a secretary, who worked weekends at a Dairy Queen, and who barely had time to grace the public imagination, Dorothy achieved the near impossible. When she died, she almost toppled a global empire and left an artist in a state of mental collapse. Now, we can look back at the Dorothy Stratton story and point out all of the factors that led to her death. Domestic violence, sexual assault, pornography, objectification. It's easy to see in hindsight, but in 1980, she was just a naive, unsophisticated girl, barely out of her teens, about to become a star. She was trying to live the American dream. Being famous was a way out of poverty and misery. Taking off her clothes was just the quickest way to get there. For a stunningly beautiful woman in 1980, there were, ironically, not that many options. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Drew Cole. I'm Lainey Hobbs.